from the book of 1 Samuel. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Morning, everybody. Uh, we are right now in the third, second, sorry, uh, Sunday after the Epiphany. And the season of the Epiphany is all about how God reaches out to us and how we get to learn about him, know him, learn about him, and grow in the knowledge of God, who he is, how he acts, and so forth. And so when we talk about knowing God, I don't just mean knowing about God, right? What I mean is knowing about God, not just knowing about him, but knowing him in his being. I mean, for example, I mean, you could be married to your wife for 25 years, eat dinner together, go on trips together, conceive and bear children together, and never really know her, right? And she never really knows you. Why? Because it's not just about a knowledge of somebody's existence, a knowledge of really what makes that person tick. And I would say, to dive a little deeper, the idea here is relational intimacy. You really know somebody. You don't just know who they are. Hey, there's the little lady over there. Right? Okay, fine. But what makes you actually know someone is that you have relational intimacy with them. It's the same way with God. I mean, Christianity, I've said this a million times, Christianity, in fact, all of Scripture, the relationship with God, the God of the Bible is relational. Christianity is at its root relational. Christianity is not just an intellectual assent to a truth claim, right? I believe in God. Big deal. God doesn't care if you believe in him or not, because everybody believes in God. What God really wants from you and from me is a relationship with us, to know him relationally. And in fact, if you think I'm stretching the truth here too much, I'll prove it to you. God reveals himself to us in relational terms. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is our Father. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bingo! A relationship. Here's the question. How do we get to know God relationally? What does that even mean, and how do we do it? Once we know about him, how do we actually get to know him? And then what do we then do about it? So I want to look at this question of knowing God relationally, not just as a concept, as a theory, as the big guy in the sky, right now. How do we get to know God relationally? I want to look at this with the story of this story of the conversion, well, the calling, really, of Samuel, this boy in the temple, with two points today. I want to look at how God calls us to relationship with himself, point one. And then secondly, once he calls us into that relationship, What do we do about it? So how does God call us, which is really cool? And secondly, once he calls us, what do you do? So before we get into those points, let me just give you a little bit of a background in the story. It's kind of a long text. You might have lost your attention. Let me just give you some background. The story from this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 3 is about a kid named Samuel, 7, 8, 9 years old. We don't know. He's a young boy. Samuel's a young boy who works in the temple in Jerusalem where the Holy of Holies exists, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And Samuel works under the main priest, the head honcho, whose name is Eli. Now, Samuel, if you don't know the story, he's kind of a miracle kid, right? He, uh, his mother couldn't have children, and so she prayed to the Lord, and the Lord, her name is Hannah, the Lord gave her Samuel, in fact, Samuel's name, means heard by God. And then once she's raised the boy, this miracle kid, right, with a, fa- I mean, a human father, human mother, but a, 
miraculous conception, so forth, he might say, she then turns him over. She gives him to the Lord. Once Samuel's weaned, she gives him to the temple where the kid grows up. I mean, think about it. The kid is from probably three years, years old. He's, he lives there. He works there. He prays there. He's next to the priests of the temple all day long. He is there 24-7, right? But notice something really, really important, and I find this actually a little terrifying. That Samuel lives in the temple. He lives there full time, and yet the text says that Samuel did not know God. How can that be, Father? Really? Someone works in a church who doesn't really know God? That's astounding. Well, friends, it's true. Samuel, I mean, here's the thing I want you to understand here, and this is a, this is, there's a lot of nuance in this idea of knowing God. Samuel, like everybody else, every Jew, Samuel knew that God existed. I mean, everybody knows that God exists. Samuel knew that there was a God out there in the sky, right, that he was the God of the covenant. Samuel knew that God existed. Everybody, I mean, the Bible presumes everybody knows that God exists. Yeah, some of your friends who are trying to be, I don't know, antagonistic or even maybe a little smarter than everybody else, will claim to, say, to be atheist. They'll even say, I'm an atheist. But no one actually lives that way. No one actually lives like an atheist. No person conceives of themselves as a random collection of atoms that just happen to be bouncing around from, from time to time. No one conceives of themselves that way. Nobody thinks of themselves as just a random chance event, right? No one hugs their child in the morning and says, good morning, my randomly created 98-degree Fahrenheit carbon unit. Nobody does that. So when someone says, I'm an atheist, call them, because nobody actually lives that way. Because we all know it's not true. I mean, I'm not saying everybody believes in Jesus. That certainly is true. But there are no such thing as atheists. Nobody actually lives that way. That's how you know what a person believes, really, is how they live. Not even atheists really believe in atheism, but, I'm, but I digress. Samuel, the point I want you to make here is that Samuel, like everybody else, knew as a concept anyway that God existed, but he did not know God relationally. He didn't know God in the quote-unquote biblical sense of the word. He lacked a personal relationship with God. The text says in chapter 3, verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Here's the point. For us to know God, for you to know God, and for me to know God, he must, he must call us. He must call us. And, I, and he calls Samuel. I mean, Samuel knows there's a God out there. He works in the temple, for crying out loud. But he doesn't really know God yet. And I love how the story unfolds. It's just, you can kind of picture it, right? Here's Samuel in the temple. He's asleep. And God, God calls him by name. Samuel! You ever been asleep, like dead asleep at night, and something just wakes you up? Bing! You ever happened to you? Happened to me last night, actually. Someone knocked right outside. Don't know what it was. But you ever been awake? You've been, you're startled awake at night. Instantly, all your neurons are firing, right? That's what's going on here with Samuel. And so if you look at verse 5, it's real subtle. Samuel wakes up, bing, and he runs. It says he runs in verse 5 to Eli, which is a Jewish way of saying he's, he's really curious about what's going on. And he runs, Samuel the boy runs into Eli, the old priest who's fast asleep, and he says, yeah, I call, here I am. Samuel did not know 
God. But notice something here really important. It's a subtle thing, but it's there. Samuel didn't know God, but his heart was open. His heart was open. He didn't just blow it off. Oh, wonder what that was. I'm going back to sleep. No, he actually gets up and it says he ran. It's an important idea. He's, he pursues, he responds to God with vigor. Here's my question for you, ladies and gentlemen. Is your heart open to God? What I mean by that, what I mean by that is, I don't mean that you spend hours in solitude praying and reading the Bible and reflecting on spirituality, whatever that means. I mean, Samuel's asleep. He is asleep. Just doing a regular, ordinary thing. But here's what makes him different, and here's why I want to challenge you today. Is your heart open to God? Do you, are you willing to hear him when he calls you? Because what makes a heart open to God, listen, is a willingness to hear what God has to say. You know, for most people, most of, for most people, our prayer life is kind of, and you probably never thought about it this way before, but for most people, your prayer life and mine is a one-way monologue, right? Kind of like the beginning to the Jimmy Kimmel show or Tucker Carlson, right? A 10-minute monologue, right? And I think for a lot of us, if you're honest, and just think about it for a second, it's true. I mean, even with me, I'll be honest with you. Our prayers are a monologue with God, right? And it's a, a list of grievances or, or petitions, maybe with the occasional th- thanksgiving thrown in there for good effect. God, heal my kids. God, help me find a job. God, show me how to raise my children. And that's pretty much the extent of it, if we pray at all, right? Most of our prayers, mine sometimes, and certainly yours at times, are monologues, right? We don't actually listen. But imagine any other relationship that you have right now that was based on a monologue. Would it be a real relationship? Would would you have relational intimacy if the only communication that you had with your children is when your boy gives you his Christmas list on on December 15th and he says, Dad, I want a a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip and a monster truck, and that was it? What if any other relationship that you had was a monologue? Would it be a relationship at all with any kind of intimacy? And the answer is... Knowing God means not that you just tell him what you need and what you want, because by the way, he already knows that. But knowing God means you're actually willing to listen to him. Just be willing. Here's a question for you. When you pray, if you pray, and I hope you pray, but if you pray, do you list or do you listen? Do you list or do you listen? So the point, first point I want you to see here in this progression of knowing God is that Knowing God means that God calls you into relationship with himself and we listen, and most people don't. But notice something really cool here. This is the part I think is just awesome about this story. Samuel listens, but God actually uses other people to make the introduction. Here's what I mean. Three times God calls Samuel. Samuel, here I am. He thinks it's Eli calling him, of course. Why wouldn't he? Hey, Eli, what do you want? Go to bed, kid. It wasn't me. Samuel, boom, wakes up. What do you want? Eli, kid, go to bed. I wasn't calling you. Finally, Eli realizes it's God calling him. Samuel can't hear it because Samuel doesn't know the Lord, but Eli does, you see. And after the third time, Eli says, you know what, kid? I got an idea. This could be God calling you. Next time you hear this person calling you by name, Samuel, here's what you say. Because here's what I say, Eli says to him. Speak, Lord. Well, your servant is listening. Here's what I want you to see. I just think this is the coolest thing. God 
uses Eli, a believer who does know the Lord. He's not very good at it. I'll get to that in a second. Eli's kind of a dirtbag, but actually his kids are dirtbags. He's just passive. But Eli, Eli has one thing going for him. He knows God. Eli, God uses Eli, a believer, to draw Samuel, a non-believer, into a relationship with himself. God uses Eli. Know why? Because Christianity is relational. And God puts people in your lives, and he certainly put them in mine, God will put people in your lives who will point you in a Godward direction. God will put people in your life who don't just know about him, but actually know him. And people that will then point you in the direction of God. I'll give you an example. I've told you guys a few times about my, the time when God really spoke to me. I was in fifth grade when I first knew I was called to be a priest. I didn't want to do it, and so I didn't. But um, when I was in graduate school, it was kind of a torturous route. But anyway, I was in graduate school, and you know that I was alone for the first time in my life. I had no friends there. It was really kind of a tough, a dark time for me. And I don't think I ever told you about this person, an Eli that God placed in my life. His name was Father John Wall. Father John Wall was, he's now the Monsignor Wall, the pastor of the University of North Carolina Newman Center. He's still there, as far as I know. I'm going to call him this week. But Father Wall was a guy who saw me. I met him at the Newman Center, which is the, sort of the Roman Catholic group there. And he, he befriended me. He was just cool. I liked him. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. He, we would kind of hang out. I mean, other people too. We'd go do different things. But he sort of befriended me. And I just liked the guy. He was easy to talk to. And I trusted him. And so at one point, a bunch of us went down to a beach house that he had in the Outer Banks. It might have been Duck. I can't remember. But we're sitting there, and uh, I said to Father Well, I'm like, you know, this whole Jesus and the Eucharist thing, this, this real presence stuff, I said, I don't buy it. I said, it seems like a bunch of hooey to me. It's all make-believe, right? And he said to me, well, all right, Smarty. He said, grab that Bible right there. And we, he had a scripture, and I had one. He goes, open up to John chapter 6. And he sat down with me. And Father Wall walked me through John 6 and explained it to me. It wasn't in a terribly theologically powerful way, but the point is he showed me literally how Christ was present in the Eucharist in John 6. Point is, Father Wall, my Eli, one of them, many, he literally introduced me to Jesus. <laughs> you know, remember that Christianity is relational. And God works on others God works on us through others. God works on others through us. Here's a question I want you to think about this week. I want you to name it and claim it, my Baptist friends. Who was, who is your Eli? Who has God placed in your life to walk alongside you? Remember, I say all the time, there are no coincidences in life. None. And so the people that God places in your experience are there for a reason, because real spirituality is not a mountaintop experience. Real spirituality is a tabletop experience. Real spirituality is relational with God and with each other. One of the reasons we're doing the online streaming, because of the pandemic, obviously, but one of the things that's really which bugs me about it is that when you're watching it online, you're not in relationship with the people in the body. And the reason that bothers me, I'll be honest with you, is because Christianity is relational. So God calls us into relationship with himself. He uses other people, other Elis in our lives to lead us on that path. And then secondly, 
God, once we're in that relational intimacy with God, he calls us to action. Now, let's go back to the story, because it's a little cumbersome here, right? Samuel's first mission, this boy, this seven, eight, nine-year-old kid, his first mission is not to go, you know, feed the hungry or go watch children or go to a nursing home and, you know, minister to older people. No. Samuel's first mission is to go to Eli and tell Eli, oh, by the way, Eli, God's going to wipe out your family. Thanks, thanks, Lord. That's a great call. Appreciate that. There's a backstory here. There's always a backstory. Eli, the priest there, had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. Thanks, Dad, for that name. But Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas were priests in the temple, and they, they had been at one point in their ministries good guys, right? I talked about Phinehas last week, how he speared through the— uh, well, we'll get to that another time. But Hophni and Phinehas were working in the temple. Eli's two sons, his two boys worked with him, right? But Hophni and Phinehas were not just ministering in the temple. They were stealing from God, and they were uh, doing things with women of the parish they shouldn't be doing. How's that? Eli, they're doing these things, and Eli knew about it, and he did nothing. This is the problem. Hophni and Phinehas had, were dirtbags. They were doing immoral things, stealing from God and doing things they shouldn't be doing with other people's wives. But Eli knew about it, and he did nothing. And so Samuel's first calling is a really hard one. To tell Eli, here's the boy. Hey, God says, Samuel, I want you to tell Eli I'm going to wipe out Phinehas, Phinehas and Ferb. I mean, Phineas and Hopney. And he does it. And this is the thing I want you to see here, and you might miss it if you don't read it, read it again, now that you know the backstory. But, man, this, this kid Samuel had guts. He had courage. Could you imagine the first thing your God calls you to do is go and tell your boss that God's going to kill your kids or wipe out your family? I mean, the point I want you to see here is that a call requires guts. It requires courage courage. Here's my question for you, friends. How might God be calling you? And I'm going to look at this kind of in two, briefly, just two quick ways. I'm going to look at individual callings and then a sort of a corporate calling. If we are all called, once we are in a relationship with God, we are called to ministry, what does that look like? Well, it's kind of two different ways to see it, as an individual and as a corporate idea. And here's what I mean. Some people are called to be clergy, very few are, thankfully. But some are called to be teachers, stay-at-home moms, psychologists, lawyers, veterinarians, financial advisors, grandparents, great-grandparents. Fill in the blank. Fill in your blank. The circumstances of God's call are, in one sense of the word, individual. Your call is different from my call in the circumstances, right? But the Point, the point of it is always the same that Eli illustrates. The call is always the same. It's to draw other people to Jesus, to introduce them to him. You know, my job as a parish priest is to do a couple things, right? To provide sacraments, to preach, bury, baptize, uh, bury people, to disciple you so that you can go and teach other people. That's my job. But all those things, all of those things lead people to Jesus, right? You and others. But that's, see, that's your job too, though. That's your job too. God has placed you where you are and your circumstances, just like he did with Eli. There are no coincidences in this world. And the only, there's only one person, the only person in your circumstances, with your family, with your circle of friends, with your skills, personality, and temperament, the only person in the world like that is you. 
You're the only one in your circumstances. And here's my question for you today. Who in your life needs to know Jesus? It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your friends. Friends, your call is to them individually. Our circumstances are all different, right? But the root call is always the same to introduce them to Jesus, just like Eli did with Samuel. So on the one hand, our calling is radically individual. But on the other hand, our calling is radically corporate. What do I mean by that? Well, there are some things that all Christians are called to do, right? There are some things which are always the same. Loving our neighbors, praying for those who persecute us, forgiving others as we have been forgiven, right? We are all called to those things. And I'm saying this to you because right now our, la- our nation is at a very, very difficult time, both politically and culturally. Can we all agree on that, I think? And I don't care about what political party you're in. I don't care if you're a liberal or a conservative, Republican, Democrat, pro-Trump, pro-Biden, pro-Yosemite Sam. I don't really care. Because no matter what the circumstances are, friends, our job as Christians are to pray for our enemies. We are to pray for those with whom we radically disagree. We pray for those who persecute us. You know, in first century Rome, uh, you know, there's... Politicians in power always do this. They divide people. In first century Rome, there were three categories of people that the government and the church used to divide. Jews or Greeks. Jews or non-Jews. Slaves or free. Male and female. Sound familiar? Those were the three categories used in first century Roman culture. It's happening again. You could call it intersectionality or identity politics. But all that really is is just a way to categorize people so you can blame them for what's going on in your life. Governments always do this. Power always does this. Look at the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution, rich against poor. Look at the Nazis in Weimar Germany, Jews versus non-Jews, right? Power always seeks to divide people from each other so they can maintain power, you see, by setting people against each other. It's happening again. But Paul says to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verse 28, that in Christ, for those who are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You see it? All those categories that the culture wanted to use to divide people, to control them, Paul says, nonsense. In Christ, as a Christian, there are no categories except for Christ. We are all. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ. Friends, it is no coincidence that as our culture moves further and further away from Jesus, that power and tearing each other down on both sides of the aisle is becoming more and more normal. Taking away free speech, calling for the persecution of those with whom we disagree. Friends, in the church, man, James says, chapter 3, verse 10, brothers, this should not be. God is calling us collectively, individually, yes, but collectively as the church, God is calling us to lead others to Jesus, who sits even now on his throne. God is calling us, friends, as the church, to lead our culture to Jesus. It will not be easy. There will be resistance. But friends, remember, we do not struggle against mere flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, demons. A call from God is not for the weak. A call from God, but the God who calls 
Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he also equips. If he calls you, he will equip you to do it. So here's my challenge. Here's my question for you this morning, friends, about God's call. Are you up for the challenge, individually and corporately? If we don't do it, who will? Are you up for the challenge? Where is God calling you? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Samuel, who heard your call on his life, who was introduced to you by Eli, who led Samuel to you. Lord, help us to hear when you call us by name. Help us, Lord, to answer our call in our individual circumstances, but also in our corporate life together as the church, in our divided and increasingly polarized and hostile culture. Friends, there is no plan B. Father, we know there is no plan B. That You call us to this ministry. Give us the courage to do it. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. 